morning, Comrade Vines. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Big Gelton Boat Road, Greater Bay Area day to us oh, all. Oh, Steve, this wasn't on our list it of things It wasn't on do. our list of things, but we're, 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 I'd just like to wish people that greeting because I feel it's appropriate at any time. Was it HSBC who put out that tweet saying, when you hear Belton Road, what do you think of? Yes. And people have put pictures of, of the camps in Xinjiang and all sorts of stuff yes. up there. Yes, some of the comments included debt trap colonialism, Shoddy built highways in Uzbekistan. I mean, I don't think you you know. I mean, (laughs) I I always say to these people in the big companies, when you want to get your nose very brown, be a little careful how you do it. (laughs) Hong Kong people, comedy gold. Yeah, I know. Anyway, anyway. The, the bank who loves to clean your money. Um, let, don't don't get me started on HSBC, but you could get me started right. on how we're going back to the past. Yeah, go on. This so, was your so, his overture earlier. So here we are. Here we are. Um, now the LegCo um, is has decided in its wisdom, or it will decide in its wisdom because it does whatever it's told, that they they've got a major piece of legislation sitting here international controversy over it enormous domestic controversy over it so i tell you what let's not scrutinize it let's just nod it through as quickly as possible because there's great urgency we are incidentally in case the listener hasn't been awake pay attention listener we are of course talking about the extradition bill which which is called the fugitive attenders and will act but anyway um they say it's urgent, 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 urgent. Must be done yesterday. Must be done even before yesterday, if at all possible, because we can't extradite this person to Taiwan. Taiwan has it said doesn't want him. Said <laughs> if you're going to use this bill, uh, if you're going to use this law to extradite him, we're not going to have him. But they go, oh, we we don't need to pay any attention to what they say. And I'm thinking, oh, hang about, hang about. You want to extradite him to a territory which says it won't accept him and we don't have to listen to what they say. I mean, don't even go there in terms of logic. But the thing I want to talk about is this whole business of people who say, oh, you know, this is undermining all the traditions of of, of the LegCo. You know what? They're wrong. This is the traditions of LegCo. When LegCo was started, which was extraordinary, the Legislative Council was established in 1843, a year after the British colony was established in Hong Kong. It was done very, very quickly. Why was it done quickly? Because that was the colonial model, is that you had to give a a, a sheen of respectability to all decisions taken by the administration. Now, in its original incarnation, back then in 1843, it only consisted of officials. Mm. So, you know, it was was sheep voting for their own shearing back then. It was only until 1888 that they introduced so-called non-official members. Mm. And the non-official members were were, were picked on, on very sound grounds. Can you raise your right hand when told? And they go, yes, right, thank you you're in so what happened then for a very long period all the way up staggeringly to um to the period during the first world war 1916 is is the the um colonial government and the establishment business companies said you know this is a good arrangement we have a we have a legislature a legislature that just rubber stamps whatever comes out of the administration. We don't really discuss any of it. We just pass it through and we make it into laws. That was a nice cosy agreement. In 1916, it was proposed that there might be a bit of reform, 
And all these sort of big businessmen, that might involve locals getting involved. I don't think we would. So that was put on the back burner. And then there was another enormous um, move made in 1946 by the governor, Mark Young, to, to, to undertake a really fundamental reform of the LegCo with elections, with giving it power to scrutinise bills. And, and it was the same group of suspects who knocked it back in 1916, who did the same in 46? so no reform then. Yeah. You have to fast forward, and this is staggering. I just want to remind people about how slow this process was. I mean, it was slow even by colonial standards, because remembering the LegCo model is a standard colonial thing. It existed in India, it existed in all of the British colonies, except for in other colonies, the, the legislature was actually given a bit of power the LegCo here wasn't given any power. Still, to this day, hmm. legislative um, council members cannot initiate legislation without permission from the chief executive. The, uh, the chief executive always has the power to overrule anything that they decide. Well, if yeah, they want QED. To. <laughs> QED. So here we go. So we wait until, um, staggeringly, until 1985, when you get the first element of elections introduced into the LegCo, and they immediately realised what an enormous mistake this was because all the people who got elected were Democrats. So there were other reforms going up to uh, 1991 when they were, they were quite significant. And then you actually found that the overwhelming majority of the public vote, and remember there were more people being directly elected at that stage, went to the Democrats, although indeed the pro-government forces did have a shot at it. Hmm. They finally decided which LegCo they really liked in 1996, which was when they set up the provisional LegCo. If you remember this, mm. they used to meet in Shenzhen, <laughs> lovely place. A year before, this was a year before the handover, and the beauty of the 1996 provisional LegCo is it was not composed by elections, <laughs> and there was no opposition. They were all government sycophants. Incidentally, presided over by, by one of the most stalwart pro-government lackeys of the colonial era, Rita Fan, who'd suddenly decided that she liked the colour red much more than any other colour she'd ever seen in her life. And in the same way as the LegCo and Exco members who, who collaborated with the Japanese during the occupation, the same sort of people, the same sort of people were sitting in the provisional legislature in 1996 up to 1997, large number of colonial turncoats but the interesting thing about that is they saw this model and they thought do you know this really works for us they'll do whatever we tell them to do however come the handover and even the most extreme and rabid of the anti-democrats sort of thought Ooh, I don't think we can really quite have the provisional legislature model going into the new era because remember in 1997, it was still the period of making nice mm -hmm. to the people of Hong Kong. Making nice to the people of Hong Kong didn't tell them that elections were going to end and that they could only have a legislature that didn't c contain um, opposition. Now we get to the really interesting thing. But do you think these boys sat there and accepted defeat? Not a bit of it. So what do they do? And this is really smart. What do they do is they sit there and they think, Right, if we're going to have to have elections, let's just tilt the board a bit. 
And this is the stage at which the liaison office and various other Communist Front organisations here started pouring serious money, and I mean serious money, into the pro-government ca uh, camp parties, primarily the DAB, so that not only did they have money at election time, but they managed to build up this enormous district framework with full-time employees. I mean, this costs squillions of dollars in cash. Some of it may have come directly from central government sources, but I assume that most of it came through uh, business people who could be leaned upon. If you know what's good for you, we'll be expecting a check in the morning, that sort of thing. So they, they then um, started to build up primarily the DAB, and they used the, the usually compliant press. If you remember, there was a whole spate of stories, um, so-called scandal stories about individual Democrats. I mean, it's classic tactics. Yeah. You know, um, welcome to the Chicago, which is, which is now known as Hong Kong. So there were all these so-called scandals about Democrats, most of which didn't amount to a puffball in a, in a pastry shop. And they also used this... Um, overwhelming power that they had in the local media to make sure that um, somehow the pro-government forces were, were portrayed as these great fighters for localism. So they pointed to their enormous local groundwork and said, yeah, see what they're doing on the ground. These are the people who really fight for livelihood issues. The Democrats are just waff waffling on about democracy and who wants that? So that tactic was actually very successful. And because of that concerted activity, and most importantly, because the liaison office had the power to go to the Democratic camp during elections and saying, you will not run in this election, we don't want competition here, this is our chosen person, the rest of you can do something which involves multiplying, and this is how this election will go. So while the Democrats were still divided, they then handpicked who would run in the various districts to make sure that they maximised the forces. This worked. It worked very well. So even during the period when they relied on elections, indeed, the DAB started becoming a mighty electoral machine. Um, in other elections, where you had compliant um, so-called former Democrats were, were, were encouraged to stand to split the Democratic vote, etc., etc. But, you know, communist parties don't rest. They were very happy with all of this, you know, they finally got to a stage where a plurality of the vote, popular vote, actually went to the pro-democratic camp. Oh, sorry, to the pro-government camp. So you think, oh, they'd be satisfied with this. Not really. So then we get to the stage where they use the majority that they have in the legislature to change its rules, to limit debate, to limit scrutiny of legislation, because they have a majority that goes through. But then there was this worry of, tell you what, and this is, we're now moving straight up to the Carrie Lam era, I think we could start screening out candidates. That would be a good move. Mm. So that we can actually steadily control the, the so-called independent election process by saying who we think can stand and who we think can't stand. So you've had nine people, to the best of my knowledge, screened out from legislative council elections. And then, of course, you've got the expulsions from the chamber itself. So you've now had a total of six people actually expelled, two people waiting to expel. That will be eight people. They control everything. You know, you want an extradition bill? The hands are ready to go up. You want a bill for saying black is white? Hands are ready to go up. Yeah. So now we've got to the ultimate absurdity 
which is perhaps not so absurd. If you, if you love the colonial regime, you will love where we are now. Where they actually say, you know what? If we've got an important bill and the Democrats are kicking up, I tell you what, we'll just not bother with the usual procedures. We'll take it straight to the chamber because, you know, our tame poodles there will vote for anything. Give them a bone and they will be on their hind legs begging for it. That's where we've got to. So it's staggering. All the people who are ready to shoot their hands in the air, they believe, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that they will be exempt from disappearing in a black van or... Well, well but more importantly, in the immediate term, they know that the resources will keep flowing to them to keep their constituencies with all these full, full, fully staffed and reasonably paid operatives. Mm -hmm. They know that when it comes to selection within the pro-government camp, the liaison office will say, I saw that hand go up, he or she is still in, good boys, I'll tell you what, here's another bone. In fact, here's a little thing to munch while you're waiting. Drag up some history here. I mean, well, how often, how often have people who've been the favoured ones suddenly not been the favoured ones? Well, I can tell you, um, the, the, very infrequently, but I mean, the person who, in, in the litany of pro-government legislators who, who became an absolute paranoid hate figure among the liaison office was James Teen, who was then the leader of the Liberal Party and, and was the crucial person deciding not to vote for the Article 23 legislation. Mm. And he has been in the deepest of brown stuff ever since. But to be fair to him... He hasn't given up. I mean, Vines has some correspondence. We do, from a listener. Go maybe on the listener, in fact. From Alan, who, who makes an interesting point. He says, you know, um, uh, I, I was badgering on about how undemocratic the government was in the colonial era, and he points out, well, that's something the shoeshiners often do to justify the current situation. Well, he's quite right. Um, he says in the 60s and 70s, when Britain was decolonialising all over the world, um, <laughs> they were planning to to introduce more democracy in Hong Kong. I'm not quite sure that's right. But what he says is, Beijing heard about this. Mao told the Hong Kong government there was no democracy in Hong Kong, which he knew could lead to independence. Otherwise, if they wanted to have it, he's going to send in the PLA and take Hong Kong over the next day. So all of that talk about uh, democracy was put on the back burner until uh, Governor Patton arrived. And then he said, um, also in the 1970s, when the UN was making a list of, co of colonies and making resolutions that these countries, uh, sorry, these territories should be given self-determination, mm. China quietly got Hong Kong removed from that list. That is absolutely right. And then he says, which is also absolutely right, to their discredit, the United Kingdom did not protest about that. Mm. So the UK was complicit in all of this. And... Uh, we know where we are today. Let's do a little side topic here. We hear about two or three issues in which you say the UK is complicit and bugbears with the people of Hong Kong. The biggest one, I just want to get your take on this. You know, when someone says, give people proper passports, people overseas who lived here during those years, give them don't BNOs and stuff like that. Well, yeah, I mean, this was the... And, and the Gurkha boys. Well, let, 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 let's put that all in perspective. If you remember, before the handover of Macau... Hmm. To, to China, most of the, no, all of the citizens of Macau who'd been there before were, in fact, given Portuguese passports. The full deal? So, yeah, the full okay. deal. So not, not any sort of funny old 
PNO as opposed to a BNO. Yeah. Um, no, no, they got they got the full deal. So people said, you know what? Why don't you do it here? Now, Makes of course, sense. of course, they did. If you remember, have a scheme. This was after TNMN, when I think the the total number of passports issued was two hundred and twenty five thousand. Mm-hmm. Which, considering the population of the time, was about six million, didn't make that. Wasn't much that of for a... worthies? No, no. They, they had another scheme for worth. Well, they had as 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 they had a special scheme. Like cops, children. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They had they had a special scheme. Not not for all cops, but for cops doing sensitive. Blokes in uniforms and, and no, no, not even blokes in uniforms. It, no, oh. it didn't. No, that was interesting. It didn't even go that far. Okay. It was sort of cops doing spooky dookie type of stuff, and their families got passports and special arrangements for other people, who say in the immigration service or what have you Mm. um and their families who you know they said we'll look after you but that was actually a very very small number of people okay then they came up with this um british national overseas scheme which of course is nationality of nowhere it's a travel document and remember that travel document cannot be passed on it's only um if you have it because you were here at the time and you had your Hong Kong permanent ID you can keep hold of it your children won't get it etc mm. etc et even if you marry um, somebody they, they don't get any rights to one of those so it's it's not the world's most useful piece of kit and one of the reasons why mm-hmm. <coughs> Britain um, other than the paranoia about immigration which funnily enough still persists to this day is that the Chinese didn't like it they, they they sent through channels of things saying, you will not, you will not be creating a sea of British passport holders on our land. So loads of people who still live here, they're the ones who this would yeah. have applied to. Yeah. What did other countries do as over, over the years? Um, well, I with mean... With regards to this. Um, you, usually, hmm. usually nothing... I mean, remember, in fact, let's, let's just go back. Remember, in the old, old days, and I'm talking about pre... 1960 mm. actually all hong kong people were entitled to a british passport okay you could you know you lived up in yunlong you you go down to the passport office say i'll have one of those please and they go yeah that's all right so what happened yeah well then as i say then then you got this mainly i don't think this was to china it was to do with the general paranoia in britain about immigration they said well hang, 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 hang. why are all these people got passports just like ours they don't even look white yeah, and that was the end of that. I know. I mean, <coughs> the point of me bringing this up is, you know, whenever we have these people like Hong Kong Watch and all these guys, and then yeah. when, you, when you read comments and statements from them, you get local people quite rightly saying, "Yeah, well, you didn't look after my mum and dad, that, did you?" That's true, Maggie that, that, that <laughs> or true. whoever. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, there was much hand wringing and saying, "We will never." We were. You remember the famous words of Tony Blair at the. Um, at the handover series, we we will never forget or abandon the people of Hong Kong. Exactly. And he got on the plane. Oh, thank so, God, yeah. I'm out of Hong Kong. Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna, not going to be talking about that again. Thank you very much. Is this one of those reasons? You know, when people say, "Well, why can't we have rent control in Hong Kong?" Oh, oh no, different budget. Yes. Is this one of those? Well, no. I think I think it is just. Um, I think that by the time we got to '97, Hong Kong was just a, an embarrassment frankly, to really? the British government. I don't think the people in Westminster cared two figs about the people of Hong Kong. I think it's as simple as that. Why so? There's going to be a lot of people who haven't because, got a clue what you're because, talking about. Because they're politicians and there ain't no votes in it. Fair enough. There's the only thing that is votes in is is bashing immigrants, not in not in being nice mm. to, you know, Johnny Foreigner. So when people... I, s- I, I, I hate to say this, but yeah. it is true. 
I mean, the fact that, that various Hong Kong people have made enormous contributions to life in Britain, well, that's all, you know, for the fairies. We don't need to worry about that. Yeah. It's <laughs> so when you read not, the stuff... Not to mention improving the cuisine of the country. No, most definitely. <laughs> when you read this stuff, it says the Brits hung Hong Kong people, hanged Hong Kong people out to dry. I think that's entirely you true. Do. And a lot of people were very... I mean, I was here then. People were very, very resentful, particularly once the Portuguese said to the people in Macau, the deal's on for you, deal's off for people here. And the, the logic of it, which I thought was really offensive to yeah. people in Hong Kong, was, oh, well, Macau's a little place. You know, That's... it doesn't really matter. But actually, guess what? Portugal is smaller than Britain. Had you ever... Has anybody actually looked up the, the, yeah. the, the demographic details of how many people live in Portugal? So proportionately, probably the amount of... The number of passports that they issued would have been less proportionately than the Brits if they'd have done the same thing would have issued. But anyway, that didn't mm. happen. It's obviously uh, not uh, going to happen. And of course, it doesn't need to happen because people didn't want to leave Hong Kong. People are only leaving Hong Kong when forced to do so. That's what immigration is all about. Perfect segue to our next topic. Is that what's on the cards? Well, I wonder. I wonder. I mean, I, I just, just to talk about this, sorry to keep hammering on about this extradition thing but it is the elephant in the room exactly i mean it does worry me that they've managed to get three civil service organizations to come out and support the bill the head of the icac now let's just remember how these things are supposed to work the civil service is supposed to be politically neutral once a law is passed different question it's the law of the land you obey it and you enforce it but while there is a political discussion underway, the idea that the head of the ICAC, Independent Commission Against Corruption, should go out and make a statement saying we really need legislation of this kind. Honestly, I've never seen the like of that before. It seriously undermines the credibility of the civil service. So, you know, they are so desperate now, they just don't care. Scrutiny of bills in their chair, throw it out the window independence of the civil service ah well you know never mind about all of that get them behind the bill get them to sign petitions and make statements this is undermining the core values in a very big way and i'm staggered that there hasn't been more fuss about that but hey a few more minutes with steve if you want to get in touch please do morning brew should we talk about something entirely different well i'll tell you what um have you noticed that over the past handful of years something really juicy comes out just a few weeks before july the first <laughs> yeah well that is interesting actually yes i mean it it, it you, you might almost july the first in case anybody hasn't noticed is the handover day but um you might also notice that that the government is doing its best to make sure there'll be a massive massive turnout at the rally on on uh, which is now planned for june 9th against the extradition bill but i also suspect there'll be an even bigger turnout for the june 4 commemoration in victoria so Park. we've got three potentially huge things yeah or, or notable things coming boiling up. away yeah. boiling away there yeah. I mean, um, you know, is this going to be her quote-unquote Article 23 in terms of what the reaction is from the public? Who knows? I'm just putting it out there. Interesting point. I think what has changed, and remember we're talking about um, the Article 23 legislation was very early into the beginning of the Hong Kong SAR. Now things have moved on to such an extent that I think even if Carrie Lam wanted to back down and 
signs of that are nil, so let, let me just make that clear. But even if she did, the central government um, are now making it clear that they want this legislation passed. And you know what? They don't, they don't change their minds.